Hey awesome nerds and welcome to another bonus episode of D&D and TV. Uh, not the podcast, well normally it's a weekly podcast where we talk about television shows you really enjoy and how the themes, concept and characters could be used in your role playing games. But today we're actually talking about a movie uh, since it's one of the bonus episodes that we're bringing out. Uh, and today I, your host Jeremy, am joined by um, my friend. Ben Byrne of Ghostfire Gaming and the Eldritch Lawcast, who is currently standing on a beach watching a shockwave come towards him. Yeah, I'm, I'm in trouble. Uh, unfortunately, there's no one here for me to platonically embrace as we are both, <laughs> uh, you know, set for oblivion. But uh, yes, yes here I, yeah, it's pretty bright. It's pretty bright. It it's feels bright. like that with, with how the weather is today, to be fair. It really does. It really does. Uh, we are talking about Rogue One, a Star Wars story from 2016, uh, which I have mixed feelings on, I've decided. I remember when it came out and I thought it was the best Star Wars film in a very long time. And now I'm not so sure. Ooh, that's interesting because I think yeah. I'm the opposite. When it came out, I was really underwhelmed by it. I thought that this was going to be... I, I basically thought that Rogue One was going to be what Andor, the, the Disney Plus TV series, ended up being. Yes. Andor had a lot of teeth. Rogue One is a much nicer kind of yes. Disney-esque tale. Um, and so, but, but watching it again, it's the first time I'd seen it since cinemas, basically. So almost 10 years, I think, um, oh, uh, was it 2016? 2016. Yeah. 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so, so many years. Ten, it, it, it's back in the, the, uh, the before the, time, you know, the before time. Yeah, exactly. So it feels like it's been 10 years. Yeah. Um, I, I think actually the reason that you've switched is also why I've switched because I've now seen Andor. And I've seen what it should have been. Like that gritty espionage filled like drama and much more of the the street level Star Wars. And now going back to Rogue One, I'm like, yeah, but it's not as good as Andor, is it? No, it's not. But Andor does help contextualize it a little bit better. And it really like watching rogue one after watching Andor just makes me excited for season two of Andor because there's a couple of, there's a couple of unanswered questions between Andor and rogue one. Right. One of the questions Mm. I could not care less about is how he meets K2SO. I think that 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 was something that, well, yeah, it also, it's, you know, super fan servicey in a way that doesn't really address the, um, themes of of andor or rogue one necessarily um but it's the like the solo a star wars story style question of like how did he get his pants how did he get his gun how did he meet his robot you know um but what i'm more interested in is like uh mon mothma they bring into andor as this like reference back to the original trilogy Mm. and she's on the council of rebels i don't know if there's like greater lore about what how the council of rebels formed i assume that might be in season two of andor um but she's kind of just this almost ethereal like figurehead from return of the jedi Mm. that kind of appears and seems very important but what does she really do aside from just tell rebels what to do you know and Mm. seem important um and Andor gave her an incredibly grounded, incredibly thrilling, incredibly nuanced uh, story that, like, when I was first watching Andor, I was like, oh, I'm, I'm 
I'm going to really be bored during the Mon Mothma yeah. scenes. Like this the doesn't seem stuff. Yeah. But it was actually some of the best stuff in and yeah. her final scene I had to think about it again because when it happened I was like that was a bit of a nothing scene oh she wasn't in the rest of the episode and then I thought about it and I was like I get what that scene was was yeah. accomplishing and now going back and watching Rogue One um, it contextualizes her more where I know that's this is not what they were thinking when they no. filmed Rogue One but I have a because it's the same actress yeah. I have a lot more kind of respect and interest in that character knowing kind of the 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 story behind how she got into the position she's in in rogue one hmm. i think that's where rogue one really had its strength and mon motha in particular as a character has strength that there wasn't too much known about her beforehand like there was the expanded universe stuff and books that have come after so people had things to draw on but there was always just the rebels have the plans and you always had to imagine how they got them. And this was the story of how they got them. So they basically had this very fertile ground of they can do whatever they want with it. Mm. I mean, okay, here's the synopsis for the film. Unlikely heroes band together to steal the plans of the Death Star. That is it. There is no more to it. That is exactly the film. I think they could have, you know, filled it in a little bit more. But that's just essentially a, a treatment s- a sentence. Like, that could have been the opening scroll for a Star Wars film. It literally was. Yeah. <laughs> it was the opening scroll for, for New, Hope. New Hope. Yeah. And yeah, I think just... that uh, the, the writer of this, of Rogue One, I'm not sure if it was directed by the same gentleman, but his pitch to Disney at the time for doing a, a Star Wars movie basically was, I want to do the first two lines of the opening scroll of A New Hope yeah. as a movie. I mean, that'd be great and- if they could do that for uh, Rise of Skywalker as well. Like, just Palpatine has returned. Let's actually see why that happened, maybe? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, like, pretty, it's not out of nowhere. <laughs> I'm pretty far divorced from, like... <laughs> yeah. The, the, in fact, it's so interesting, right, that the journey that we've all had with Star Wars, because speaking for myself personally... I didn't really, like, I've, I've been a, a fan of Star Wars since I was a kid. Like, everybody's been a fan of mm. Star Wars, like, since they're a kid, right? Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not, um, I wasn't hardcore into Star Wars, at least not when The Force Awakens came out. Mm. And then The Force Awakens comes out, and it just blows my hair back. Yes, I know that it's fundamentally a remake of um, uh, A New, New Hope, Hope. Yeah. but it's so modern, it looks amazing, it's got some of the cast that we love, there's really powerful themes between uh, Kylo Ren and uh, Han Solo. Um, the characters are entertaining. It's funny. Um, it's super engaging. And like the year between that and Rogue One, I was like all up on Star Wars. I was probably as big a fan of Star Wars during that time as I possibly could be. I had the the uh, Star Wars Imperial Assault, which is a board game from Fantasy Flights, mm-hmm. which is basically Rogue One, the board game, or, or Star Wars Rebels, the board game, if you will. In fact, they pulled a bunch of characters from Star Wars Rebels and put it into that board game, uh, into the expansions and things. So I was, like, so hyped for Rogue One. And then it kind of, like I said, did, I just it didn't land for me. I just felt like mm-hmm. it was... It was for the gritty Star Wars story it wanted to be, it was not that because it was too Disney-fied. There were too many glib jokes. It just didn't it didn't land the way that I wanted it to. 
um, it felt contradictory where they yeah. have like a little girl crying in the street is like almost Vietnam imagery taken directly and put into a movie in the same kind of 10, 20 minute span as somebody makes a blind joke because they, they put a hood over Chirrut Imwe's head. It just, that all didn't work for me at all. Yeah. But now I feel like I'm a lot more forgiving of Rogue One, but completely checked out of the, the Skywalker <laughs> the... saga, or at least the sequels. Like, those those follow-up sequels were not great. I honestly think I'm starting to be the same way, but where it comes to the films I'm just, like, willing to forgive is that's the Disneyfication. That's the big screen fable of the in-universe story. That's the, the propaganda that's put out for the Skywalkers and for the Jedi. And what I really want to watch are the TV shows. Like, I want to see um, Clone Wars. I want to see Andor. I watched Book of Boba Fett. I may not have wanted to see it, but I watched it. And that sort of feel to it, like, that's the real stuff that we're seeing. And the films yeah. are just the the glossy version of it because it's really broken. One of my problems on this rewatch of Rogue One was that they repeated everything three or four times. And they explained everything they were doing, like, to someone else, but it felt like it was explaining to the audience. Like it was like at the final sequence where they're trying to get the message out. Like we have to get a message through the beam. Get Bodhi on the phone. Okay, Bodhi, you need to get a message out. And he goes, oh, how do I get a message out? I know I'll have to connect this. And he's telling another rebel what they need to do. I'm like, I already got, you you need to get the message out. I got it. Just, Just do whatever you need to do and I'll understand it. You don't need to actually say what you're doing. Yeah, it's pretty exposition heavy. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that was because of the rush nature of it. Like they kind of had to cobble action sequences together and say, this is why we're doing this. Because there are a lot of reshoots on Rogue One. Yeah, there's... Can we swear on this? Yes. Okay, cool. Um, We don't usually swear on the lawcast, that's why I ask. Um, This is a a free, safe space for swearing, Ben. You're free of the lawcast now. (laughs) Yeah, great. Um, It's Dyson DMs all the way. (laughs) yeah, Yeah, cool. Um, man, I'm having flashbacks. Yeah. There's a um, there's a really great podcast series. I've been devouring the entire thing. It's on YouTube, but it might be other places, but I've been devouring it on YouTube. It's called um, It Was a Shit Show, or The mm-hmm. Shit Show, maybe. But it replaces the eye and shit with, like, a star, um, yeah. you know, to avoid YouTube censorship, I suppose, if you need to find it. Um, and it's basically... Uh, Three friends. It actually remind the the structure of it reminds me a lot of Dice and DMs, where hmm. uh, uh, you know the the host. I'm going to blank on his name right now, but he, basically it's him and his wife and their like good friend uh, talking about movies. Um, and uh, they did one on Rogue One actually quite recently, um, and they talked about how the director kind of wanted to you know, treat it like it was a little art house indie movie that they were making, but they had the budget of a Star Wars movie. You know, let's make an indie movie in Star Wars. And apparently that was why it was... um, There were so many differences between the trailer and the finished product of the movie Mm -hmm. is because a lot of the more art housey, experimental type shots of, like, Krennic walking out on the water and stormtroopers walking through the water which a lot of the um you know uh advertising material was was based around at the time um and like Krennic stand i think there's a shot of him like standing on the death star looking like really imposing um and it's like a slow pan up to him that's not in the actual movie all of that was like their art house experimentation kind of stuff that they didn't end up using in the final movie 
and then we're like, shit, shit, shit. We need to, okay, we've, <laughs> we've got most of a movie here. Uh, okay, this needs to fit here because we're going to go over budget and this needs to fit there. Okay, and let's, you know, smash the thing together. So I could be misremembering that, but uh, go, go listen to that podcast after you listen to this one and um, I uh, certainly you'll get think, more context. I certainly think that Rogue One out of a lot of the Star Wars films is the prettiest. Like it yeah. looks, it looks amazing. Yeah, like for 2016, the- I feel it was one of the best things that they brought out. You know what I don't like visually okay. is that that like ground forces Tie Fighter that doesn't have the wings on the side. It's got like wings on the top. Yes, and it's like fighting the X wings like down on the beach. Yes, that thing is ugly. That was uh, speaking of pretty <laughs> things. That is not one of them. That was a terribly designed looking like looks like a can with like wings attached to it. You know. Yeah, I'm wondering about some of the designs on on things like that. It is an amazing dogfight, and you get to see why why the the X wings are so lauded. Like they mm. were taking out ATATs on the beaches just like one shot. And this mm. is something we've seen in Empire Strikes Back, which take numerous shots to to take down. And, like, they really need to struggle, the ground forces. And then suddenly you just get a plane, just shoots it in one shot. And it's like, oh, uh, kind of, that's kind of why we need it. Why didn't they deploy the X-Wings in uh, Empire Strikes Back? Why were they in the Snowspeeders? Like, like, because they needed and Luke the, had an X-Wing right there. Like, they needed the X-Wings to, pre- to go. They needed the X-Wings yeah, okay. to protect the transports getting away. That's a... That's a good answer. That's a good yeah. answer. I'll always get an answer for Star Wars. This actually, I think, would be the first time we'll bring up role-playing games because that's kind of the thing that you can use as a game master when you want to show your party different levels of power with a combatant or with a with an enemy, that you've got these AT-ATs, which they know are very dangerous, and then if you bring along, say, an X-Wing, which just blows it out of the water, you now have a, a sta- like a... a, pa- a ranking power ranking for them yeah yeah there's always a bigger fish style yeah. thing which is also a star wars reference yeah um yeah i mean they did a similar thing in uh i was playing god of war recently i just finished ragnarok um fantastic game 100 percent of it um sorry i'm gonna turn this into a video game podcast um, but they do, do a similar thing where uh you know you're fighting this giant i think it's a lion maybe or it might be one of the alligator looking things um and it's a big monster that you're like fighting against and you, you think, man, this is a, not a hard fight, but this is a challenging fight, and this thing's scary, and it's big, and it's bearing down on me, but I'm going to hit it with my axe, and, oh, I'll dodge out of the way. Oh. And then, like, I think halfway through the fight or towards the end, a dragon just swoops down and grabs it and flies off, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> now I've got to go kill that thing? Oh. And so, yeah, it is a great, like, raise-the-stakes-style mechanic to be like there's always a bigger fish, so to speak. That's one of my favourite tropes to use as a game master just like yeah you've there's always going to be something bigger i wanted to build an entire adventure around that concept that they fall into like this old and dwarven citadel and they come across the equivalent of like a cave troll or something and then the balrog comes along and just like slaughters the troll and they're able to run and hide from it but they now know that's out there and the rest of the adventure is them trying to just escape the caves as this thing chases them Yeah. Sure. I just thought that would be a really, really fun adventure to do. I feel that one of the problems is that players don't like to run away from things, which is always the the issue. That, that like, indicating when to flee, you know, or when, like, 
yes, there is a path forward there. I mean, I talked about this with um, James, I think, on the Lawcast, or maybe I think this was on the Lawcast, where... If you um, can't quote the episode, no one's going to listen to it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, again, we were referencing God of War and it's like making a Metroid-style dungeon. How do you mm. make a Metroid-style dungeon where you have paths that are clearly paths, they're places that the players can go, but just not yet because yeah. they don't have the right piece of equipment or they're not high enough level or, you know, whatever it is, and you've built this dungeon in a way that you want them to be able to... to go elsewhere first to gain experience or gain a magic spear which breaks rocks or whatever it is um and communicating that to players can be hard because yeah they they're like that's what the gm's describing so that must be the way to go like that must be what we need to engage with uh, yeah so and that speak. feels something difficult to to build in i mean i know a lot of video games like so i'm thinking of gta or something like that where you're not able to cross over a bridge until it gets repaired or potentially you need a certain amount of money to get out of town and that's when it opens up and that seems like something you could do pretty easily in that that regard it's like the passage across the the ocean into that area that they keep hearing about costs so much money that they're going to have to scrabble and earn and get all through the little local quests first yeah 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 which we okay bringing you back to rogue one for a second (laughs) this idea of scrabbling and earning like it is that ground level sort of story like it's the people behind the scenes almost it's like the story behind the big big adventure the big myths i guess we're coming through i'm not real. i'm i'm trying to copy your segue style i'm not achieving uh, it very well no one can copy my segue no. style because they make no sense um yeah i see what you're saying i think that it's uh done much better in andor because the stakes in andor are incredibly high i suppose mm. they're but very they're personal. also yeah yeah exactly right um uh escaping the prison in andor spoilers for andor mm. is not going to save the galaxy at least not directly right um stealing all the money from the the imperials at the dam i can't quite remember aldani is that what they called it um that that mission is incredibly high stakes personally for them because if they get caught they'll get killed or or arrested or whatever um but that mission is not going to save the galaxy in and of itself right Mm. it's small achieving small goals to overcome the empire over time whether as rogue one it feels incredibly high stakes right the whole rebel army shows up the the rebel armada shows up to try and stop um what's what to, to try to steal the plans is what i mean to say um which makes it feel a little less like these are the people behind the people behind yeah. the people that you well- care about I'm, I'm wondering about that because while like the entire rebel fleet shows up and it's this massive battle, but the things we see are these small moments of it. Like we get to know these characters, we get to know Jin, we get to know Cassian, we get to know um, Bodhi and their achievements are getting a cord to join together or grabbing the right tape. And that adds on to something like the very, the final sequence with Vader, like cutting his way through the, through the rebel troopers on the ship. It's like all of that, they're just passing along a USB drive. Mm. 
It's like, it's not this massive battle. It's just faceless people passing along the USB drive, but there's tension in it every single time of will they be able to hand it on to the next person? Mm. And that's kind of the story I think they're, they're aiming for, that all this other, this big stuff is going on in the background, but we're focused on that little one achievement, that little one victory that they have, and it means a much larger victory down the road. Yeah, absolutely. It, it was funny watching it again with... Um... Uh, that Vader scene, which is incredible, mm. and it happens what in the last like five minutes of the movie, like it's really is that, like the last the end, yeah. Um, and uh, they run the plans, and and um, CGI cartoon Princess Leia takes it, yeah. And she's like, "What did they give you?" And she's like, "Hope." And she is smiling like she's on drugs, like yeah. well, like she does not realize the sacrifice and the blood, sweat, and tears that went into getting these plans, right? Mm. Like, like it was just funny remembering that the Darth Vader scene and then her getting the plans are, like, literally sequentially back-to-back. That's exactly what happens. He monsters them, the ship gets away, and then they run the plans up to her. And it's just, uh, it's a little bit jarring. I, I, I suspect it's because, A, they wanted to end on a high note, and, B, they kind of maybe didn't, think about Realize. it too much being yeah. distracted by trying to make a cgi cartoon of the late carrie fisher's face um but uh uh yeah it was just weirdly jarring there's, to me. there's a bit of dissonance coming from that i feel that they didn't they didn't need to have her they could have just had the back shot and just say hope with yeah them. maybe yeah. maybe that's not a bad idea i mean i found that and i remember at the time thinking that cartoon um Tarkin. Tarkin was so distracting and it still is. And the other thing, the other thing that annoys me about that and like the ethics of recreating um, Peter Cushing in that way is that it's not a Peter Cushing performance, right? Mm. Tarkin in um, A New Hope is so terrifying in a real Tywin Lannister, like, he's not dark and menacing like Vader is. He's just nobody goes against Tarkin. He doesn't have to leer at you. He doesn't have to lift a finger. He doesn't need to even cock an eyebrow. He just looks and people do what he wants them to do. And, like, Peter Cushing, for me, will always be... Tarkin for like he's not he's not Van Helsing to me he he's not the kindly old oh, no, you know he's... doctor he is like he's up there with um, Charles Dance in terms of just being able to look incredibly menacing while looking incredibly calm you know and the fact that like Vader answers to him is also because Vader's incredibly menacing you're like okay. This guy must be badass because Vader's listening to him. Well, you know? I, I wonder about that as well because he answers to him in New Hope, but I feel like it's kind of like a working together and you're in charge today, but tomorrow I'll be well, in charge. Well, that's the military fleet. structure, yeah. right? Like that's that's what's terrifying about the Empire. And they talk, uh, there's been, all, you know, many essays done about it online about Andor, the mundanity of evil, the fact that this is an organization and Vader is a weapon that is used by that organization right he is a, a an agent of terror um and a, a weapon that is extremely effective and efficient and even tarkin in rogue one says you know um uh 
uh, should we should we deal with the rebel fleet? And he's like, no, Vader will take care of them. We're going to do this instead. You know, like yeah, they, we got the planet. They've got good. A, Vader's Vader's yeah, here. They've got yeah. a good uh, working relationship. But the point that I was making is Tarkin in this mm. has a a scene where he he clashes with uh, Krennic. Mm. And then Krennic leaves, and so the scene ends on Tarkin's face, and they just get this, like, intense, like, I am evil Leah that they put into the CGI of just Tarkin going, like, "Mm, I'm so evil. And I was like, no, that's not... That's not who Tarkin was as a character, and that wasn't Peter Cushing's... um, Performance of him, no. He was just... He was not a cold villain. Exactly. absolutely cold. Yes, I th- yeah, I think that's interesting because Tarkin, would you say Tarkin is the villain of this? No, Krennic is the, the yeah. protagonist. Oh, the antagonist. Oh, the antagonist. Sorry, I think Krennic is the antagonist. Krennic's fascinating. I want to get into Krennic in a second. But I feel because our main characters are Jin, like the first person we're interest- introduced to is, um, is Galen and then Krennic. Yeah, like the, the backstory, like all the backstory for Jin, we see Galen and we see Krennic. Krennic is almost the, I mean, he is the antagonist. He's almost the anti-hero. He has these desires that he's trying to do. We see him go to Vader and try and get what he wants. We see him try and challenge Jin at the end. It's like he Tarkin is Krennic's villain, and Krennic is our hero's villain. This is my dad. This is my dad's dad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is my, you know. Yeah, I don't know. I I I think that um, th- there's something about Ben Mendelsohn, the actor who plays Krennic. Mm. He's he's an Australian actor. He's a great actor. Mm. He he gets his own like terrifying role in Animal Kingdom, the original That's Australian right. movie that was made literally ten years ago. I think that was two thousand and nine, two thousand and ten. Was that movie? So uh, and thirteen years ago. Mend whatever <laughs> more than ten. <laughs> Uh, Mendelssohn is menacing in that movie and he's terrifying. But again, it's a very simple, like he's, he's just a crook, right? Um, who murders people, but he's not like a serial killer or anything like that. He's just a, a, a criminal, you just know, a like a, he's a drug dealer or something. I can't quite remember. I haven't seen that movie in 13 years. Um, but he's really fantastic in it. That was the first movie I think I saw him in. And he was also in Cozzy, which is an, an Australian oh, play as Cozzy. well, which got made into a movie. He played the lead in that. But he's kind of Hollywood turns. They keep casting him in these kind of, like, pathetic villain roles. And I don't yeah. know if they're trying to tell poor Ben Mendelsohn something, <laughs> but I just find Krennic, like, ultimately very pathetic. And it's the same with, uh, I think, Daggett is who he plays in uh, The Dark Knight Rises. Uh, who just like Bane is the the um, the I, the I do not remember him in Dark Knight Rises. I was thinking more well, Captain exactly. Marvel. Who is he in Captain Marvel? He's the Scroll. That's right, but he turns out to be a good yeah. Okay, so that's yeah. an example of like a good Ben Mendelsohn performance, and like he's he's fine in Rogue One as well, hmm. but just Krennic is so pathetic and so unlikable in well, every way. You know? I would. I want to talk about Krennic as a villain because I feel that Krennic as a villain would work particularly well in role-playing games. Like if you've got an action one, because he is this weaselly little backstabbing, conniving villain that you never really face directly. But all of the stuff that you've got to do relates back to his plans. 
Like he's the one that's holding Galen. He's the one that's shooting the scientist. He's the one building the Death Star. That's going to be this massive problem for it. All of these things, everything comes down. To, like he's the one that is he? Does he plan the test at Jeddah for the 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 um the test firing, or does Tarkin yeah. order that? I I mean, Krennic's giving the orders, but yeah. he's there to do a demonstration for Tarkin. I, I believe. Yeah, it's, and- but it's his project basically. That this well, is, yeah, he won't let us forget it, that it's yeah. his project. So all of this kind of revolves around Krennic, but it's only twice that Jin is actually like directly, one, like Jin, our main character, is directly face to face with him. There's a, and I, it's like when she, when he goes, who are you? And she's like, I'm Jin Erso. It's like, should I know that name? Because I've never met you yeah. before. There's a, I've actually read the the prequel novel Catalyst, which is about Galen and, and his wife and like before and why they were friends with Krennic in the first place yeah. and this whole thing. And there is a running thing that Krennic can never remember Jin's name. <laughs> like he, she's like six or something when they flee the empire. And he's just like, yeah, they've got a child. And I can't remember what they've named her, but I'm sure they'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, that seems like a Krennic thing to do. Yeah. This, I mean, uh, Krennic's this... so, uh, you know, he, he, his criminality or his villainness, if you will, is that he just cares about no one but himself, right? Mm. Like, he doesn't have, he doesn't have ideals uh, or bonds or, you know, he has flaws, but he doesn't have, like, a, a bond or an ideal. His bond is himself. And, well, and his bond is his project. Well, I don't like, even think, think he he'll really do cares to about the it. Death Star. Nah, I don't think he cares about the Death Star. I think he cares about the prestige that the Death Star brings him, right? Because yeah. if he cared about the Death Star, he would care less about um he would care less about like who owns it or who takes credit for it or whatever. He might care a bit about that stuff. But my kind of reading of his characterization, especially because he runs off to Vader and he's like, yeah, Tarkin stole my toys, mm-hmm. you know, is very, to me, that says that he cares way more about his own personal, because he, he yeah. my reading of the film is he didn't build the Death Star. He didn't have anything to do with it. He like funded it maybe, or he like project managed it, but he wasn't he project like, managed it. Yeah, he wasn't like a scientist who figured out how any of it really worked, you know. Um, if I remember the novel, he's the one that finds Galen and is like, oh, we can use kyber crystals and it'll actually work this time because it wasn't working beforehand. Right. So, again, he's not even the one that is able to finish it. It's all Galen. Yeah, but, yeah. But Krennic's the guy that's taking all the credit for it. And he's well, the one that's pushing to. it with the Emperor and saying, no, no, we can do this. We're going to get this done. I'm going to get this done. Yeah, yeah. So I see that to me is a really fascinating villain because he doesn't care about the party. He doesn't know what's going on. Like they are, they are gnats to him. Sure. They're just like obstacles in the way. And I think like a villain can, if you want that massive forces against your your opponent like against your characters if you wanted to seem like this is uncaring world that you're just trying to struggle against he's the great villain for that that he does not know who you are he doesn't care who you are you're just in the way i've got to deal with you now Mm. Mm. 
And is he in Ready Player One? Is he the villain in that? Yeah, that's right. And he plays the same type of villain yeah. again. Just like this, like, wormy, I don't like this guy kind of, uh, you know, villain. Because I was just thinking he'd be a really good cyberpunk villain where you're basically fighting yeah. against a corporation and you're just fighting against troop after troop after troop. You're fighting against all the stormtroopers. Yeah. And at the end, you just come across this guy in an office who's like, I guess you beat me. And he's got one pistol. Like, that's his his ultimate weapon. It's not a big battle at the end. It's just about ruining his plans. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it, it can be hard, though. Like, if you're going to do a villain like that who is um, sort of quote-unquote... Um, you know, not um, a, a mental challenge to the party rather than, or a social challenge to the party rather than necessarily a physical challenge to the party. D&D being a game about fighting monsters, you've just got to be careful you don't end up with an anticlimactic, like, final encounter. Yeah. Um, like one I mean, maybe shot. if you oh, get players... Well, exactly. You know, maybe if you get players that are, like, particularly emotionally invested in that moment of finally getting revenge on this dude or ju- serving justice to this dude in a way that's really cathartic, maybe that's, um, maybe that's you know, the way that you can play it. Or maybe they don't want to kill him. They want to, you know, bring him back for trial or whatever. Maybe that's a way that it could be done. But I feel like, you know, even if you do have players that are going to enjoy his... Um, just desserts if he's only got 16 hit points and he goes down with one hit by the time the party get to him if they don't even get to enjoy his demise he just kind of you know falls over the minute they breathe air on him um so having like an alter like having a climax before the climax so to speak uh, like having a way to, to handle that the big the big bad the dragon of the the piece like yeah. someone he controls and then you fight that and then come through the curtain and he's standing there he's easily taken out but then you then have that choice that that Jin has in this that andor that Cassian tells it like Krennic's down he's been wounded but he's not dead and Jin's about to go finish him off and Cassian's like he's not worth it and they just leave and like that's yeah. That's where I find interest in role playing because this is some this is someone who's ruined her family. That's made it so that she never actually got the life with her father or mother that she was expecting, mm. and to not take that vengeance is the character choice. Mm. Like that's where you get the character growth. Mm. The good it does her the twenty minutes before she gets blown up, but it's well, <laughs> it's, it's it's good theme because it means you know she doesn't die with hate in her heart, so to speak. Yeah. You know her her final moments are moments of relief and achievement as opposed to moments of feeling um, you know vitriol and and anger. Um, so I'm seeing Rogue One now as like a one shot that you run where everyone kind of expects to die at the end of it. So mm-hmm. you you go for those character moments of I get to have that that piece. I get mm-hmm. to have that that moment of of contentment and balance. So you give them opportunities to to make those choices, and what the choice they make, you just feel well, it wasn't earned at that point. Maybe she didn't talk enough with Cassian to reach the point where she'd trust him that way. So she does kill Krennic. Yeah, I mean, it's up to the players. I, I think that those sort of like. Like I'm a I'm a big proponent of introducing theme into a D and D campaign, but you kind of you can't do it with a ideal of what you want the players to do, or or passing judgment 
unto the players or their character, right? Because like if Jin makes the if Jin's player makes a decision to kill Krennic in that moment because that's just more fun in the moment, like beat yeah. the bad guy and they're not really thinking about like the characterization of their character or their journey and then to be like oh well you weren't ready to come to peace yet it's like fuck off i'm having well, fun killing the bad guy like i think you know. i think if they decided okay they want to have it like no no she gets vengeance they kick him off the tower and he falls and it's like ah oh, yeah you finally got it and it's like an uplifting triumphant moment oh it's yeah, like, yeah yeah it's, whatever guess... they choose is the right choice it's just where have they taken the character yeah yeah for sure, for sure. but you give them the choice to see where they take it I did have a think, though, as well about how to run this as a one-shot. And my problem is, if everybody's dying sort of halfway through, mm. um, achieving their individual goal, because let's assume that, like, the... Let's assume that it's not a, 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 a... You know, everybody dies in the final fight against the BBEG at the end of the one-shot, but at least, yep. you know, evil was punished or defeated that day. Um, let's assume everybody kind of dies in the more, you know, as as you mentioned earlier in the episode, the, the small tasks that need to get done that make up the whole of the effort. Um, you know, how do you do that if a character dies, like, an hour into a three-hour one-shot, you know? Like, um, how do you keep that player engaged? Do you give, like, all right, you now control background rebels and like you'll probably die five more times as these background yeah. rebels but like <laughs> there'll just be another one for you to keep playing as as the one shot continues to unfold this is kind of what i i kind of felt that was actually happening that chirrut and Baze don't really get introduced and Bodhi doesn't get introduced until oh he gets introduced but he doesn't actually like become part of the party until halfway through and it kind yeah, of felt you- like it was a one shot where Jin and Cassian's players had come in and they're like, oh yeah, well, we need some comic relief. So someone else sits down and then another couple of people are like, yeah, let's play as well. And like people keep joining the table. Yeah. And as someone like disappears or someone's bored with their character, like, no, no, you'll be playing this guy. Oh, okay. We, maybe I won't play that guy. I'll play this blind monk that's over in the corner. Yeah. Yeah. There it's just is, hard to it's hard to manufacture that having players yeah. come in one at a time, you know. Unless There's you're like, a, you can't um, play until week three. There is a webcomic called Darths and Droids that was retelling all of the Star Wars saga as a role playing game. Like Star Wars didn't exist in this universe, but they were supposedly playing the the stories as a game. It's very funny because it, it kind of goes through their lives as well. But Rogue One in their universe was a one shot that one of the players decided to run for everyone mm. um, and just ended up killing everyone. So it's exactly that sort of thing. It's like, Oh yeah, Ben can't make it this week. So he's going to step in and play this, this blind monk as he comes in next week. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. How did you feel about that introduction of the characters? Look, no one gets particularly good characterization except for Jim. Like you don't find out, yeah or don't see any of the other characters' backgrounds except for an insipid line. In fact, you know, we know that Andor, the TV show, is built around how somebody becomes radicalised, right? Mm. Speaking of Andor himself specifically. Yeah. How does he go from someone who is, you know, suffering but content under an oppressive regime to somebody who is willing to murder to try to overthrow an oppressive regime, right? And willing to go um, against his orders and die for it too. Yeah, totally. Yeah, exactly. Uh, by, by the time we get to Rogue One. 
Um, but in Rogue One, we don't know any of that, and Cassian has some insipid line where he goes like, I've been in this fight since I was six years old, and I instantly thought back to Andor, and I'm like, wait a minute, he hasn't been fighting for the... He was like, you know, an adult before he was fighting for the Rebellion. I, I have thoughts I on that. I thought about the Imperials landing on his home planet and, like, wiping out his... or him getting taken away from his home planet, and I was like... Yeah, all right. Maybe they get away with it. Technically, maybe that whole plot line in Andor was just to like facilitate that one line he says in Rogue One about him Probably, being yeah. six years old when he joined the fight. Yeah, I think that's exactly why. <laughs> that little little bit of it. I have a feeling that the mining disaster, because the planet he's on is actually during the Clone Wars. It's like there. Yeah. It's a Republic thing. It's like pre-Empire. I have a feeling that the reason that it's all deserted and it's just kids in Andor is because some sort of accident happened and it's something to do with the Death Star. Like they were mining something to make the Death Star and there was an issue and that's killed off all the parents. So he's kind of been involved his his entire life just as much as it is Jin's or the Death Star or Tarkin's or Krennic's. Not Tarkin's so much. But yeah, Yeah. I like... That's just a theory I have. I'm I'm not fussed about it. Um, Yeah, for sure. I, did want I mean, to- as to the others, I think that, just quickly, I think that, like, Bayes and Chirrut's uh, um, kind of background and, and whole thing is kind of interesting. Uh, mm. I think I said before we were recording that Bayes was a character who I didn't really remember anything about except for yeah. that he was a guy with a gun when I first watched it. He's, like, the big heavy with the repeater blaster. Um, and then when I watched it again, I was like, okay, I mean, they don't spend enough time kind of developing the two of these characters. But they do have a cool idea where it's like, all right, these two players want to have a connected backstory. They both like the idea that they were once like looking over a monastery. But uh, Chirrut is a monk who still believes in the the old ways, and Baze is, um, you know, he's a, uh, or maybe even Chirrut plays a, a cleric if you want to add like a religious element to it in your mm. campaign. And Baze plays like an Oathbreaker Paladin or plays a Barbarian or something if, if Chirrut's a monk. And so you get like characters that started on the same journey, but then through player choices, you know, through class or, or background choices kind of um, diverted somewhat. Um, and so I thought that was interesting, if nothing else. Yeah. I, it's interesting you bring up class because I was having a look through, well, the Fantasy Flight um, Star Wars RPG. Sure. Like actually looking at, because there's three different versions. There's um, the Edge of Empire, which is more like the swashbuckling in space. There's Age of Rebellion, which is you play rebels and Force and Destiny, which is you play Jedi. Right. And you can kind of, like each one of them has like six classes. It's all the same rules, but there's different classes in each set and they don't cross over. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that the... Um, the Age of Rebellion ones, you have the ace, the commander, the diplomat, the engineer, the soldier, and the spy. Mm-hmm. And you can kind of take bits and pieces as the story requires. It's like if you're a commander, but you need some spy skills, it's like when you level up, you take a couple of, like a level in spy, basically. But gotcha. those kind of match with what we see each of the characters in this. Like, I think they've done a really good job in developing this is the Star Wars archetype. So you can build a character just like them. Like Cassian is very clearly a spy. Sure. And Jin is kind of an ace. Like the ace idea is you're really good at one thing. 
like you're a sharpshooter or you're a, a slicer, like you're a hacker or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, and I just thought that'd be it's it's useful that they've kind of built on the the films and the style that that the films have. Yeah, to build I mean, you know, there's something about that that's very um, you know, the canon of a heist movie or the canon yeah. of a kind of war movie even ensemble movie where you've got your sniper and you've got your heavy machine gun guy and you've got the captain and you've got the sneaky guy and you've got the like um you know scared uh dude that needs to kind of get built up and you know Bodie's all scared and like oh where, what am i doing i i need help and Baze is the big heavy with the big gun and Chirrut's the the you know spiritual one and Cassian's mm-hmm. the captain and Jin is doing stuff too. Jin's also yeah. there. Jin's did also feel there. like just kind of also there. It's like she really just did come into the fight this month. The rest of the time she just... Well, then again, I wonder, because Saw Gerrera, we haven't talked about Saw Gerrera yet. Saw Gerrera yeah. being like a key figure in Star Wars lore now. Um, yes. Showing up everywhere, it feels like. I That's kind of why feel- this... That's kind of why this movie feels like it's 10 years old, even though it's yeah. what, like... because he's been everywhere. years old or something. Yeah. Because, yeah, so this was the original movie that he was in, to my understanding. He wasn't he was anywhere before Wars. this. I think he might have been wasn't in Wasn't he introduced... First? I thought he was introduced after the fact. Like, it was kind of like he's been in... I could be wrong. I'm, I'm uh, But, uh, yeah, my impression... Because he's in, like... He's yeah. in a, a video game. He's in Jedi Fallen yeah. Order. Where he just kind of randomly shows up, and you're like, "What the hell? Is that Forrest Where the Whitaker? hell did this guy?" <laughs> yeah. Well, I feel like he's an alternative villain. Like he's the villain that they're able to talk down, like rather than have to fight. I mean, he's a villain. He's kind of like one of those characters who's not really a vi- like he is a villain, or or he's an antagonist, but he's not really a villain, right? Yeah, he's a a a, a goal or an obstacle the players need to get around, but he's not like the main villain. It's like, all right, we've got to go over here to get this because we need this off this person, but they're not entirely going to be friendly to us, so we get to choose whether we want to try and mm. um, you know social this guy or combat this guy. You know, there's mm. the. The, the choices there. What I like about Saw is, again, I think they did a really good job. I'm not sure what he's like in Rebels or, or Clone Wars. I assume he's a little bit more cartoony, no pun intended, in terms of his um, characterization. But in Andor, you see that, yeah, he's a bit of a... He's a bit of a, a hardline, you know, rebel. Hmm. And all the rebels are working in these separate kind of little factions and, and cells, if you will. Um, and then I can't remember the character's name off the top of my head, but Stellan Skarsgård's character in Andor yeah. comes to him and says to him, hey, this other rebel guy who we're working with, we're going to sell him out to the Empire. We're going to get 100 rebels killed because well, if we warned them then They'll the Empire's going to know... we got a Yeah, spy. and they could track it back to us if we yeah. don't warn them and sacrifice that piece. And so it makes 100% sense by the time you get to uh, Rogue One that uh, Saw is just this broken, 
paranoid man who believes that everyone is coming to kill him, rebel or imperial. Mm. Um, he is like an absolute shell of a person uh, because of what he's done and experienced and had kind of done unto him. That's not to excuse his, um, you know, terrorizing that he that he he is does to everyone yeah. to do. Well, we see him um, do. We see him like literally terrorize Bodhi. Yeah, yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, with but Borgullet, Borgullet, Borgullet will see the truth. Borgullet. It's I just, just, just that's the one line that stuck with me from Rogue One. The, all these years was him just going <laughs> Borgullet. It's yeah, a great performance. I think it is a good performance for everyone. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, uh, writing writing might not be great, but the performances are great. Look, there's no shock that this movie wasn't considered at the academy right like i don't think anybody's doing a bad job but but i think you're right the the quality of what's written on the page is i mean this movie ultimately and this is why i found it underwhelming the first time in a way that and or isn't is that this movie had a real tone problem right Mm. where i can't remember if i said this before we were recording or after but you've got images that are deliberately pulling from uh, Vietnam and yeah. the Iraq War, or yeah. sort of Middle Eastern war zones, what's represented to us through media, where rebels are kind of, you know, depicted at, literally as terrorists um, fighting against an oppressive regime, but you have a little girl crying in the street uh, who gets rescued by Jin, but it's incredibly evocative, and I, I would suspect deliberately so, mm. of I think there's a a very famous photograph of a young girl fleeing, uh, like, napalm strikes during Vietnam. Yeah, yeah the Miami um, um, massacre. Yeah, there, there's, you know, these incredibly, like, um, evocative, war, real-world wartime images being drawn on to try to make this thing feel like, no, they, these pe- this is a real war. These people are battling an oppressive regime for their lives, for their, for, for their you know, for their existence. Um, and then within the same 10 minutes, you have, um, Chiratimwi going like, why are you blindfolding me? I'm already blind. And it's just like, so, um, jarring and just feels like Rogue One is, is trying to, to make the points and hit the tone and atmosphere and Mm -hmm. themes that, um, that that, that Andor is, but just not making it. You know, I mean, there's time. also within that same period. There's also when Jin shoots the other K two droid, and then it, yeah. it comes and it's the K two's okay. He's like, "Did you not? Did you realize that wasn't me?" And it's like never Which answered. Is it's legitimately funny. a funny line. Like I'd forgotten that that happened, and so when she turns around and shoots him, even I was like, like my partner laughed at it, and even I was like, "What the? Oh yeah, that's right." Um, and I th- I think it's that because that first one you get the catharsis away from the action. Like, there's a lot yeah. of tension in that because, yeah, the child could die. This is a kind of film where they could kill the children. Like, yeah. people are just getting blown up left and right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe not because it's still for... But you get yeah, the feeling they could. I don't think they're they going to kill the children on screen. You get the feeling they could. Like, I don't think that kid made it out, honestly. She got given to her mother. They ran down the street and a bomb went off and they were dead. Like... Maybe. Maybe. But I, like, I, I, I think... Like, I was never afeared for, for the safety of that child. Like, it's a Superman no. moment of, yeah. like, da-da-da-da, save the child from the rocks falling or whatever. Yeah. But it's just the the construction of that um, 
of of the cinematography makes mm. it kind of harken back to real world events. Yeah, but then we have the the moment with the K two droids, and we just get that that laugh to relieve the tension of the the action sequence. And then Chirrut gets reintroduced. He beats the living shit out of a whole bunch of stormtroopers. And then there's another joke. And it's like, but we didn't need the catharsis there. Well, I also think that, like, Andor doesn't provide catharsis. You know, it has action and beats without the need for those Mm. kind of insipid jokes, you know. Mm. And, like, it has those great performances of Stellan Skarsgård telling the spy that he has inside by the the um intelligence agency like what he's sacrificed um to to be able to carry on this war and you have andy circus realizing that he's not getting out of prison oh you know? i love that you sequence. have you have um you know all that sort of stuff unfolding with no um catharsis with no yeah. kind of like i think that's because television the- television you can do that because you know you're going to be coming back the next week at seeing what happens to these characters when it's on the screen, when it is literally like building sized because mm. you're at the theater, you need that moment to sit back and go, okay, I can take the breath now. It's okay. They've made the joke. We can do that mm. because otherwise you're going to be sitting at home and it's still going to be going around in your brain. And I think it's just a difference between film and, and film and television. I think Andor is doing, doesn't need the catharsis because you have that moment to sit back and just do it yourself. Whereas the film, they've got to keep moving. They've got to keep moving. I, the reason I'm, I'm talking about all of this is because I want to bring to your favorite topic of jokes in RPGs. Of why it's it's good to have jokes at the table, but when you take it overboard, it does just ruin the tone. And that's kind of what Rogue One was doing. That it kind of ruined the tone by having too much. But it's good when you've got that horror sequence to be able to laugh a little bit and say, yes, just remember we're playing pretend, but okay, now back in. Yeah, sure. Yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's about reading the moment, right? When you're yeah. playing an RPG at the table, like it, it's fun to keep it lighthearted and make jokes, and you know, often, particularly at my D and D table, because I keep it, I, I try to keep the tone relatively grounded. Some of the best jokes that either I or another player kind of throw out there are the non sequiturs of. Uh, the example that I can think of is uh, Critical Role, uh, I think episode, season one, I can't remember which episode, I can't even is remember which character this scene? is. No, 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 it's okay. the bathtub scene. It's um, uh, like, I think it's a, like a hag or something, is like casting a spell and Matt's like describing like what the spell looks like and how epic it's going to be. And then somebody casts counter spell, I think, and he's like, oh, okay. And he describes oh, yeah. how like the spell dissipates in her hands and then just mimes like turning around and running away, you know, and it's hilarious. And it's that non sequitur between like intense, like, Oh no, we're in trouble now to like kind of goofy looking moment. Mm. And I think that's the kind of comedy that, that lives at my table the most because, you know, just taking a breath, like you said, taking a breath and getting those uh, non sequiturs in can help alleviate some of the tension. Um, uh, but it's about picking the moment and not trying to force one of those in mm. when the villain is monologuing or when a character has died or when an NPC has died. When an, MP- when a char- when an NPC who is important to another NPC 
has died, you know, like actually honouring that moment, even if the characters don't have personal, personal investment in it, just just treating the world like it's real, you know, instead of um, feeling the need to break the tension constantly. So this was my problem, my, one of my only problems with The Last Jedi. Like in very early on when when Poe calls up the ship and he's like, yeah, I just yeah. spoke with Hux and like Hux has his big monologue and he's like, yeah, I'll hold. And I'm like, okay, you're getting the jokes and look, he's so silly and shenanigans. And I'm like, yeah, but this is a serious moment. You've kind yeah. of undercut your entire purpose of the film by making us laugh that much at the villain because the villain now doesn't seem threatening. Yeah. The, the last Jedi is a, is a, interesting is an odd movie. Yes. And I like, you know, I, 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 I feel like I liked it at the time. I was not, you know, in fits of rage, uh, like much of the internet was. I feel like you can't talk about the last Jedi with at least, I know I'm wary about bringing it up now. On that. <laughs> I bring it up now. We've got little time left, so we can like, okay, we're we're not going to really delve into it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can't can't dive into too deeply there. Because um, if we go, we dive into Star Wars, we could just dive in for the rest of the day, honestly. Yeah, look, I mean, look, just to finish out the thought, if nothing else, like I'm yeah. a fan of Ryan Johnson. I love Knives Out. I think Glass yeah. Onion is interesting. Um, I hesitate to to make any strong statements on Glass Onion though because it's turning into a bit of a an internet. Not that people are hating on it, but just that people are using it to be like, "I'm cleverer than you. I understood Glass Onion better than you did." No, you don't. What you don't understand about Glass Onion is it's not meant to be understood. It's deliberately oh. a silly movie, and oh no, there is a deepness deeper to the silliness. That's de- you know. Anyway. Um, Without without getting into that sort of rhetoric, I'm a, generally a fan of Ryan Johnson, and and I respect what he was trying to do with mm. Star Wars with the Last Jedi. But it is a it is a odd movie that doesn't know where it is tonally. Yes, yeah it it doesn't know where it's going because they didn't know where they were going. Yeah, absolutely. And like retroactively kind of retconned some things in uh um Yeah, so in our Rise of Skywalker. Well, they are, yeah. Uh and I'm wondering that's kind of a strength of Rogue One that we knew where it was going to go to at the end. Sure. That you always have Rebel the they will achieve their goal. But what happens to our characters who we never get to see again, that's the the tension. Yeah. I'm trying to remember whether I had assumed they were all going to die at the end of Rogue One when I first saw it, because I don't think that was necessarily a big secret, but it was kind of like, yeah, of course. Yeah. We don't see any of these people again. So yeah, they're definitely going to uh, die. Has yeah. You, where the did fact they go? that the Death Star got to fire a couple of times beforehand, that was surprising to me. Oh, really? Yeah, for some reason, I just kind of assumed that shooting at Alderaan was the first time it had ever been used. Well, that's a good question. I noticed this actually watching Rogue One again this time, and I think the distinction they try to make there is that Alderaan is the first time the Death Star destroys a planet. Yes. Whether as... um, Because Tarkin has that line of like, we just need a statement, not a manifesto. 
yeah. um, when they blow up Jeddah. And so I think the intention, the the distinction they're making there is like the Death Star fires to destroy areas of planets, but Alderaan is the first time an entire planet is blown up by it, mm. if that is any sort of distinction. I, like, I definitely think it's the first time it's blown up a planet, but my interpretation watching way back when was first time ever been fired they no one had any idea of what this thing was capable of or even that it existed and i mean that's i think that's still held out with rogue one because i think after the jetta thing they was like yeah it was rebels and they blew up half the city and oh my gosh and the death star i think vader is like the death star doesn't exist yes yeah they are kind of secretive about it i don't think anybody who doesn't know about the death star in a new hope shouldn't know about the death star and a new hope based yeah. on rogue one yeah um but you know of course they you know when george lucas was making a new hope i'm sure he assumed that that would be the first time they were ever firing the death star as well he, similar to cassian's line about like i've been in this fight since i was six years old i was like all right you get away with that one on a technicality mm-hmm. <laughs> uh and that is technically the end of the podcast see i i learn segues there you go. From you. that's not too bad yeah, that's not a bad one. I, I could do yeah. that a bit. Um, unless there's anything else you'd like to bring up about about Rogue One um, as we wrap up. Look, it's a fine movie. It's better for having Andor have come yeah. along. So if you didn't like it a few years ago when you first saw it and have and really enjoyed Andor, maybe give it another crack, understanding that it doesn't quite go to the extent that Andor does. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's... It was a fine evening watching Rogue One. Yeah, I found that as well, that it was just something I could watch. And yeah. very fast-paced, stuff kept happening, there was good action sequences. Oh, yeah. The the start of it is, re- like, Tori said that. She was like, is this just me? Or is the editing kind of weird in this movie? And the first, no, like, half hour is super quick. It's like, mm. here's Jin, she's a little kid. Now she's not. Now she's an adult. Now she's in jail. Now she's out of jail. Now she's going over here. Now she's talking to the rebels. Now she's doing that. And it's like, Here's Cassian. Okay. He's a guy. He's got a robot. Ta-da. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really settle down, I think, until they no. get to Jeddah. And then it's kind of yeah. like, all right, now we've put all the pieces in place. Now the movie can kind of happen. Um, yeah. Before Which, that, it's pretty frenetic. I'm I'm kind of okay with. There was a lot of stuff they needed to get through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, where can people find you online? What would you like to plug? I think there's some sort of like podcast you're also on sometimes. Yeah, every week uh, I do the Eldritch Lawcast, which is uh, Ghostfire's kind of flagship podcast. You can find it on YouTube. The YouTube channel is Ghostfire Podcasts, uh, and you can also find it by searching the Eldritch Lawcast or just Eldritch Lawcast. Um, on spotify and itunes it's probably on this very podcast app that you are listening to right now yeah um and it is a uh, tabletop rpg kind of news and current affair kind of discussion podcast as well as game theory um i'm on there with james hake and sean merwin who are two of the lead designers for ghostfire and have been working uh, in the tabletop RPG industry for years. Uh, and Dale Kingsmill, fellow Australian, uh, who has been a YouTuber for years and, and really like the way that she thinks about um, D&D and tabletop RPGs. Um, so it's a lot of fun. You should come hang out. Yeah, I definitely recommend that if um, you're enjoying D&D and TV, you should go check out Eldritch Lawcast just because they will talk about just pretty much the same things, but mm-hmm. with more expertise and more people more people definitely more people 
More like expertise it, by by just you know uh, uh, nature of the math. Yeah. Uh, so Ben, thanks for coming on. Uh, if people want to reach out to the show, you can find us on Instagram. Uh, it's D N D N T V P O D or Chuck and at gmail.com on the end of that. And you can reach the email address as well. Uh, so until next time, um, may all your hits be crits. This podcast is recorded on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. Always was, always will be. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging.